Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we are so thankful for all of your goodness toward us, your blessings that we don't deserve, uh, the greatest of which is the sacrifice of Jesus, Lord, and his continuing ministry in the sanctuary above in our behalf. Father, we thank you for the Sabbath day, this time that you have set aside for us, and I pray that the Spirit of God would open our understanding as he did the disciples on the road to Emmaus today, that we may uh, gain a clearer conception of the truth that you have for us to know and proclaim with no uncertain sound to the earth in these last days. Uh, bless us to this end, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last night, the message was called LGT, which stands for Last Generation Theology, a recantation. And uh, what I said in essence was this, and I'm reading from last night's notes. I publicly recant any association with last generation theology. If you want to know what I believe about something, don't stick a label on me and say he believes that because I probably don't. Now I'm gonna clarify a little bit this morning and I'm gonna be reading off my notes a little bit here. It just helps me to make sure it's concise and articulate. Uh, sometimes it's easier to do that. And sometimes it's easier when we get into the scripture just to elaborate a little more, but um, you can follow along. This morning, I want to state clearly what I do believe, as opposed to what I said I didn't believe last night, and why the recantation in the first place, why this whole thing. I do believe the following, that we can and even must overcome sin before Jesus comes. Number two, that perfection is possible in this life. Number three, that Jesus took our fallen nature uh, and I've got a message on that, a two-part message on that on Audioverse. Number four, that the atonement was not completed on the cross. I do not believe the atonement was completed on the cross. I believe the sacrifice was completed on the cross. We'll talk about that this morning. And number five, that God's people will be the means of the final vindication of his character in the great controversy. I believe that as well. Uh, and as such, I'm easily labeled as an advocate of last generation theology. Now, here's the problem. The problem with this is that the label was created by people who don't believe these things. And it was created for the purpose of marginalizing, marginalizing and maligning people who do. And thus the label becomes a huge vortex that sucks in all kinds of crazy uh, that most of the people I know who would believe what I've just stated don't believe. As I mentioned, and to clarify, somebody asked me, uh, after last night's presentation. So which of those books, you mentioned the book by the seminary and the book by George Knight, which of those is true and accurate? Neither of them. I'm not recommending those books. They are one-sided and and in some cases there's half-truths and another, I don't want to call them lies, but in other cases just inaccurate information. And so there's all kinds of things that, well, for example, um, when, when you get within the last generation theology label, you get a whole basket of crazy, such as people who believe in last generation theology, this is what is said, don't really believe in justification. That's not true. They don't think Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was enough. That's not true. They believe Jesus was sinful. That's not true. They believe the last generation will reach a point where they no longer need the righteousness of Christ. That's not true. They're always obsessed with trying to be perfect, and thus they're either pharisaically proud or they're always clinically discouraged and depressed. That's not true. 
But that's just a handful of the kinds of things you read over and over and over from people who have attached this to the label of last generation theology. So, and then in trying to defend the label and say, no, 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 that's not what it's about, that I didn't even create, that people who don't believe in uh, a holy last generation didn't even create, in attempting to defend the label, you end up addressing more error than truth. And it simply makes more sense to me to distance myself from the label others have created for me and to rebuild on the sure foundation of the word. And so that's where I intend to go uh, this morning and this afternoon. And I wish I, I was going to show one other thing. If you on our website, um, if you go to resources and you go to that Sabbath School Personal Ministries page, the talking points page, one of the points under that will take you to our, our Emanuel Institute YouTube channel. And on that channel, I have a number of videos. There's a series on there that I go over um, salvation from the standpoint of steps to Christ kind of as a basis. It's called, um, uh, you go to the playlist and it's called, oh, I just had it on the tip of my tongue. Um, it may come back to me. But anyway, I have a whole series on that. It's also on Audioverse and... <laughs> I can't believe I can't think of it, and I'm not going to waste time on it. So we're going to move forward, but there's 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 places where I treat some topics that I can't just, we have today's, this morning's presentation this afternoon, so I can't get into the depths of justification and sanctification and, and some of those elements that I cover better in that series. Um, going the distance is what it's called. Thank you, Jesus. Okay, so Today's topic is called the present truth. We're taking it from 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 12. I don't remember if the Sabbath school lesson has been on this yet or it will be because we do our talking points ahead of time and we, I, they all start to jumble together. But if you go to the book of 1 Peter, uh, sorry, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 12, this is what he says, and this is where the language is taken from, um, the concept present truth. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 12, Peter says, for this reason... I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Now, this concept of present truth, in fact, the, the New American Standard Bible says the truth which is present with you. Uh, the ESV says the truth that you have. Um, the Good News Bible says the truth you have received. And the idea of present truth is present is is modifying the word truth is that it's something that is especially applicable and relevant to you now okay uh for example an example that we always use is the the story of noah right noah and the flood the flood was present truth and you know one of my favorite uh, uh pastors late the late pastor tony serigliano used to tell the story or give the example of um you know Noah preaching out in front of the boat. And he says, imagine Noah's standing out there and the masses of people and, he's, and, he, and he gets up and he says, today we're gonna start a 12 part series on the family. And he says nothing about the boat. And somebody in the crowd says, hey Noah, what about that big boat behind you? It wouldn't be present truth for Noah to ignore the boat. That was the thing that was especially present and relevant at that time. And so, to early seven day, in fact, um, Matthew 24, Jesus talks about servants giving, uh, or, or yeah, his servants giving meat in due season. Well, that would be present truth, something that's timely, that's applicable, applicable and relevant. And to Seventh-day Adventists, early Adventists, present truth was understood to be our message. And we, if you do a search 
in the Ellen White app. It also includes the, the writings of the pioneers. Just check that on when you do your search and type in, in quotes, present truth. And I mean, it's just loaded because that was their understanding was that's our message. Um, Jan Loughborough in the book, The Church, Its Organization, Order and Discipline, page 115, called our cause the cause of present truth. That was the Adventist cause. Our publishing houses were established to spread the present truth. In fact, one of the early periodicals that James White himself started in Middletown, Connecticut in July of 1849 was actually entitled The Present Truth. And, and uh, James White in his autobiography, Life Incidents, which if you haven't read, it's a phenomenal book, um, Life Incidents by James White. He says in Peter's time, there was present truth or truth applicable to that present time. That's how he describes it. The church have ever had a present truth. The present truth now is that which shows present duty and the right position for us who are about to witness the time of trouble such as never was. So understand that James White understood that our message was to help prepare us for the time of trouble that never was. And it was needful and present and applicable now. He continues, present truth must be oft repeated even to those who are established in it. And it's probably because there's so many voices that try to disestablish us. Is that a word? This was needful in the apostles' day, and in, it certainly is no less important to us who are living just before the close of time. For months, I have felt burdened with the duty of writing and publishing the present truth for the scattered flock. And so again, we published, that was our understanding, present truth. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is that while present truth used to be understood by Adventists to refer to our message, in, in recent years, that concept is not nearly as um, sh shared across Adventism as it once was. In fact, I know a Seventh-day Adventist who recently here, probably in the last couple of years, they had a new Adventist minister came to their church, and he started his ministry with a prayer meeting series on the present truth, all of which to try to make the point that our message is not present truth. That present truth is just the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, well, the gospel of Jesus Christ is always present truth because present truth is, is encapsulated in it. But um, the idea of present truth is what is applicable or relevant at the time you are uh, uh, living. And it's more per, uh, specific than a general, the gospel, because the gospel covers, spans all the great controversy time period. I'll clarify that as, this as we go on. Um, so anyway, this idea of present truth is, has, there are different views on it, but inspiration tells us a very clear, gives us a very clear picture. In the book at Early Writings, in a little section called The Messengers, uh, this is what Ellen White wrote, and the idea, The Messengers, she was writing about those who God called to give his message, the ministers and, and lay people who would go out and preach in the context of the, of the section, the messengers of early writing, I think was specifically speaking of the, of the ministers. But she says um, the following, page 63 of early writings, there are many precious truths contained in the word of God, but it is present truth that the flock needs now. Did you get that? She says there are many precious truths. Everything in the Bible is important, but there are things that are especially, especially relevant to the time we're living in. She continues, I have seen the danger of the messengers running off from the important points of present truth 
to dwell upon subjects that are not calculated to unite the flock and sanctify the soul. So there's a danger that the preachers are going to preach things that aren't present truth. She continues, Satan will here take every possible advantage to injure the cause. But such subjects, now here we go, listen carefully, such subjects as the sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days, the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus are perfectly calculated to explain the past advent movement and show what our present position is, to establish the faith of the doubting, and to give certainty to the glorious future. These subjects you mentioned, these I have frequently seen were the principal subjects on which the messengers should dwell. Now that is a phenomenal statement. These four subjects, the sanctuary, the 2300 days, the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus are the main subjects Adventist preachers should be preaching on according to this statement. They are what constitute present truth. And, you know, as I mentioned, that minister who took his church through the prayer meeting to point out that our message is not what present truth is. Listen, if James White said that our message was present truth because it was to fit us for the time of trouble, which is still yet future for us, but we're closer to it than James White was, then our message must still be present truth for us. And I, I'm hoping that you'll see that it is. Now, what is this Ellen White is pointing out, really? Uh, such subjects as the sanctuary in connection with the 20th days, the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Uh, interestingly, it says they are perfectly calculated. Who calculated them? <laughs> in other words, who thought, who came up with the idea that these are the perfect messages? The Lord did. Uh, these subjects, rather. So let's talk about such subjects as the sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days, the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus to gain a better understanding of, practical understanding of present truth. Notice now, she didn't just say the sanctuary. And I'm going to have to fight the, the, the urge to go into a long explanation of this. But for many Seventh-day Adventists who do talk about the sanctuary, um, and it's becoming less and less common, it's often focusing on the structure and the building, the tent stakes, the colors, the et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not saying that those that can't be a fruitful study, but that's not what Ellen White says. She says the sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days. In other words, the sanctuary has its importance as it's brought in connection with the 2300 day prophecy of Daniel 8.14. So let's ask ourselves, what does connecting the 2300 days do to the sanctuary, the subject of the sanctuary? You know, you can go back, you could look at the sanctuary and, and, you know, the Old Testament is full of it. What does connecting the 2300 days to it? Well, very simply, unto 2300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. That prophecy of Daniel 8, Daniel 8 14 points us to the anti-typical day of atonement where Jesus enters the work uh, in the most holy place as our heavenly high priest. So follow carefully here. When you connect the sanctuary with the 2300 days, it moves us from the earthly sanctuary to the heavenly sanctuary and to Christ's closing work in the most holy place. That's what it does to the subject of the sanctuary. So now notice that this, this present truth is not the earthly sanctuary and the animal sacrifices. It's Jesus' anti-typical ministry in the heavenly sanctuary. That's where the focus is going, okay? So the sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days, that's part of present truth. And then she goes on, oh, let's also, and I'm going to come back to this, it, his, 
it points us to the work of Jesus in the most holy place, which is also a work of judgment. Okay, hang on to that for a moment. Let's look at the next part of what she called present truth, the principal subjects, uh, the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus, the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus. Where do we find this phrase in the Bible? Well, we find it in Revelation 14. It's how the three angels' messages conclude. You know, in other words, you get the three angels, and then here are they that keep the commandments of God. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus. Okay, so the 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 three angels' message closed. The third angels' message specifically closes with that phrase: the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus. Note also that the three angels' messages begin with the declaration of the judgment hour that has come, right? The hour of his judgment has come. How do we know when it came, right? You stumble across the book of Revelation and you're reading and you're like, wow, the hour of judgment has come, really. When is the time for that? How do we know when the time is that the judgment came? There's only one place in scripture we can go, Daniel 8, 14, which takes us back to the sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days. What I'm wanting you to see is that these things are not all separated uh, uh, subjects. They're all part of the same picture, okay? Uh, the, the, the sanctuary in, the connection of, with, with, in connection with the 2300 days points us to Jesus' work in the heavenly sanctuary, which is a work of judgment. The commandments of God and faith of Jesus is how the three angels' messages end. They begin with the judgment hour. In other words, Daniel 8, 14, prophecy points us down to the end of time and takes us into the three angels' messages. Ellen White says in the book, Great Controversy, page 409, the scripture, which above all others, had been both the foundation and central pillar of the Advent faith was the declaration unto 2,300 days then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. The foundation and central pillar was Daniel 8, 14, because you don't even get to the three angels. You don't get the judgment hour proclamation without Daniel 8, 14. And if you do some study in the three angels, messages two and three come in response to message one. The three angels go together. Now listen to this. Well, let me make this point first. In other words, these four subjects, the sanctuary, the 2300 days, the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, all point to the closing work of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary, preparatory to his returning to this earth with power and great glory. All four of those, in other words, that present truth is pointing to the final work of Jesus in getting ready to come again and the preparation that we must have to meet him when he comes. That's what it's about. And thus James White talking about preparation for the time of trouble and, it, and what have you. So now notice this statement, again from the book Early Writings, page 254. Ellen White writes, the third angel closes his message thus. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus. Now listen to this. As he repeated these words, he pointed to the heavenly sanctuary. I mean, that just gives me chills when I read it. In other words, where is the patience of the saints? How are they supposed to keep the commandments of God? Where is their faith of Jesus anchored? And he points to where Jesus is currently working. She continues to say the minds of all who embrace this message, the third angel's message, are directed to the most holy place where Jesus stands before the ark, making his final intercession for all for, uh, sorry, making his final intercession for all those for whom mercy still lingers 
and for those who have ignorantly broken the law of God. So the third angel points the way to the heavenly sanctuary where Jesus is. Now, I have to say, there's a lot of talk today in our church about being more Christ-centered. And, well, I, let me read this other, the beginning of this other statement, the following statement from uh, Great Controversy 488 and 89. Ellen White begins by saying, the sanctuary in heaven is the very center of Christ's work in behalf of men. In other words, folks, Jesus is in the sanctuary right now. He's not on the earth. He's not in the manger in Bethlehem. He's not on the cross. He's not in Joseph's new tomb. He's in the heavenly sanctuary. And to talk about being Christ-centered without talking about the center of where Christ is, is not Christ-centered at all. I'm just afraid that that's reality. There is, we don't know enough or hear enough about the work Jesus is doing right now. We say, oh, it was all done at the cross. It isn't done at the cross. And scripture is clear. We're going to see it in a moment. The, so I'm going to finish this statement in Great Controversy. The sanctuary, let me start it again. The sanctuary in heaven is the very center of Christ's work in behalf of men. It concerns every soul living upon the earth, not just Adventists, right? What he's doing is for the salvation of humanity. It opens to view the plan of redemption, bringing us down to the very close of time and revealing the triumphant issue of the contest between righteousness and sin. So the work in the sanctuary takes in those final events of earth's history. It is of the utmost importance that all should thoroughly investigate these subjects and be able to give an answer to everyone that asketh them a reason for the hope or of the hope that is in them. The intercession of Christ in man's behalf in the sanctuary above, listen carefully, is as essential to the plan of salvation as was his death upon the cross. Folks, is well, she, I'm, I was going to say what she says here. By his death, he began that work, which after his resurrection, he ascended to complete in heaven. The heavenly sanctuary is not separated from the cross. The cross is not a separate thing. We're not ignoring the cross when we talk about the sanctuary. We're talking about one big overarching work, the work of redemption, the work of atonement that Jesus began with his sacrifice on the cross and continues in the sanctuary in heaven. So we're not diminishing the cross. And when I say it wasn't completed. The work wasn't completed on the cross. The sacrifice on the cross was complete. But just as the earthly priest, then by the virtue of the sacrifice, had to go into the holy place and then the most holy, so Jesus, by the virtue of his own blood, goes into the holy and the most holy of the heavenly sanctuary. So, consequently, all that is associated with these subjects, this work of Christ in the most holy place, in preparing to come again, all that is associated with these subjects constitutes what should be the burden of Adventist preaching today, the principal subjects on which the messengers should dwell, Ellen White said. So let's turn our attention with the remainder of our time to the heavenly sanctuary. And I'm going to go to the book of Hebrews. I'm going to start in, in, in chapter three. I want you to look at something in chapter three with me very quickly. Hebrews chapter three, something that I don't know. It hit me. It's been a few years now. I, you know, I've read it before. And then, you know, sometimes you read something over and over and then you read it and bam, it just hits you between the eyes. And so it was with this particular verse, uh, Hebrews chapter three, verse one. And listen, uh, obviously this is not an exhaustive treating of this subject, but I'm hoping we get, I think we're going to get a clear picture from what we look at here in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter three, verse one, the apostle Paul writes, I believe it was the apostle Paul, he says, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, 
Now listen to his language. Consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. Now he goes on to say other things, but I want you to, the, the idea of consider there is not like sometimes we use consider, uh, consider, yeah, I think I need something. It's to think deeply about, intently upon something. And he tells us to consider Christ in two roles, not one. As the apostle, which we don't think of Jesus in terms of apostle, as one of the apostles. An apostle in the Greek, apostle means one who is sent. So he's talking about Christ as the apostle. In other words, in the context of Christ being the one that was sent to this earth to die on the cross. But he doesn't stop there. He says, consider Christ as the apostle and the high priest. Why is it so important to Paul that we don't stop with Christ as the apostle? Hey, he came to this earth. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. He rose again on this earth. But he says, consider him also as our high priest. This is essential to the apostle. And we're going to see why as we go to uh, what we're going to do in the remainder of our time is go to Hebrews 10. And then we're going to work our way backwards. And you'll see what I mean. We're going to finish in Hebrews 9, but I want to start in Hebrews 10. And this passage is just, I don't understand how it could be plainer. Hebrews 10, starting in verse 1. It starts out, for the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. So the law he's talking about is the law of sacrifices. And that's plain from the context. The law having a shadow and not the image can never with these sacrifices. Okay, so it's the ceremonial law that's pointing out the, sac the sacrificial law. Now follow along. Uh, he's basically talking about the sanctuary and its sacrifices can never make those who approach perfect. And we don't need to get into a discussion on what he means by perfect, because if you read verse two, notice what he says. For then would they not have ceased to be offered. For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. Now, let me ask a question. How does a person have consciousness of sin? Because you sinned, right? And if I'm sinning and I don't have consciousness of my sin, it's because... I'm either, I've seared my conscience or because I've stopped sinning, okay? There's, there's those two avenues. Now, don't miss it. The apostles telling us that there's a problem with the earthly sacrificial system, and that is it couldn't make those who approach with their sacrifices perfect. And his logic is flawless here. If it did, wouldn't they have stopped offering sacrifices because there would have been no more consciousness of sins? His point is if they had been made perfect, and in the context, cleanse from sin. You're going to see this as we go on. If they stop sinning, why would they need to bring sacrifices anymore? And so it's evident in the fact that they kept bringing sacrifices that it wasn't taking away their sin, okay? This is not speaking simply of taking away the guilt of sin. Because, for example, if I had sinned and brought a sacrifice to the sanctuary and it took away my guilt, that doesn't preclude me from bringing another sacrifice the next time I sin. Okay, so that's not the point. He's, he's not talking about guilt here. He's talking about the fact that the worshipers keep sinning and the sanctuary wasn't fixing that. You'll see that as we continue, as he continues. He says in verse three, but in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Okay, so this is where he states his case. This is the problem with 
these sacrifices, the earthly system, it was not there. It, it, couldn't, it couldn't finish the job. It couldn't take away sins. Now, continue on, verse 5. Therefore, when he came into the world, speaking of Christ, he says, and he quotes from the Psalms here, but he, he said, so he attributes this Psalm to Christ speaking, sacrifice and offering you, capital Y, did not desire. So Christ is speaking to his father. He says, what the apostle is saying is when Jesus came into the world, you've got this backdrop that we just read of the fact that bulls and blood of bulls and goats doesn't take away sin. So when Jesus came into the world, he said to his father, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. Now, there's a little caveat there in the volume of the book, so I'm going to take that out. Jesus says in verse 7 that the apostle attributes these words to Jesus when he came into this earth. He said to his father, behold, I've come to do your will, O God. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. I didn't come to bring sacrifice and offering. I came to do your will. Okay, you'll get the picture in just a moment. Now, it, the, the language is a little confusing in verse 8. He says, previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor have pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, uh, the New American Standard reads verse 8 like this. It says, after saying above, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings, etc., Verse 9, then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. Now, don't miss this. This is incredible. He's contrasting two things, okay? He's done it twice. First of all, when he came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you don't desire, but a body you've prepared, sacrifice and offering, or uh, you had no pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices. Lo, I've come to do your will, O God. And then he repeats himself, previously saying sacrifice and offering. Then he said, behold, I've come to do your will. So the first that he mentions is sacrifice and offering. The second he mentions is doing the will of God, the two things he's contrasting. And he says in verse 9 that Jesus takes away the first, the sacrifice and offering, in order to establish the second, doing the will of God. In other words, in what we've read so far, the problem with the earthly sanctuary is the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. It couldn't help us to do the will of God. We were constantly not doing the will of God. And so God sent his son. Jesus said, lo, I come, and the volume of the book is written of me. And Jesus did the will of God in order to establish the doing of the will of God as possible for humanity. Now you're going to see that as we continue, okay? As he continues. Verse 10, uh, I'm going to read verse 9 again. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He has, takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will, right? The second, the first is a sacrifice and offering. And the second is doing the will of God. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But, now why do you put the word but after something? It's a contrast. The priests couldn't take away sins. The offerings couldn't take away sins. But this man, 
after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Now, I've had some people, when we get down to that part, they're like, well, there it is. By one offering, he's perfected. They're already perfected in whatever term Paul's trying to say. And, and so, in fact, uh, New American Standard, King James Version in verse 14 says, for by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. But the, the verb tense is, it is um, better rendered in the New King James. They're being sanctified. And the simple point he's making is this. Um, he's contrasting how the many sacrifices that couldn't take away sin, he's contrasting that with the one sacrifice that could take away sin and which does take away sin and which becomes the basis of our sanctification. Now, I read something a little bit disturbing in one of those last generation papers where um, the, the author actually stated um, sanctification as our merits. Uh, in other words, justification is what Christ does and sanctification is what we do. Folks, there is no good thing within man justification and sanctification are all the work of Christ. They all come by faith, as seen in the book of Acts, chapter 26, I believe. So this is all the work that Jesus is doing. And what the apostles trying to show here, you can't escape this in Hebrews 10, is that the fatal flaw of the earthly system was that it couldn't take away sin. And so God sent Jesus, and Jesus in his ministry, in his priesthood, which is what the book of Hebrews is about. It's contrasting the earthly priesthood with the heavenly, the earthly sanctuary with the heavenly. That Christ came in order to take away sin. And he is able to take away sin, contrary to the earthly priests and their ministry. And that his one sacrifice is going to be effective to take away the sin of humanity, those who are being sanctified. Now, the idea of sitting down at the right hand of God. Well, we know Jesus isn't seated because in verses before and after this, he's talking about Christ's active present work in the sanctuary. So he's not sitting somewhere. Uh, more could be said. I don't want to get into the weeds on this. But you get the gist of the picture that he's giving us here in uh, Hebrews 10. So... Because of that, um, he tells us that we can come boldly uh, into the holiest by the blood of Jesus in verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Oh, there's so much that can be said here. But simple point being, the new and living way is contrary to the old and dead way that we read about. Sacrifices and offerings was was dead. They were dead. And he's talking about the same thing Paul says in Romans 12. Give your bodies a living sacrifice to God, which is holy and acceptable. Your reasonable act of worship, I think it says in the NIV. It's the same thing he's making the point of here. We are now able to enter by a new and living way that Jesus consecrated for us when he came in our flesh and lived a life holy before God. So his whole point in Hebrews 10 is that Christ's ministry was to take away sin. Now we're going to backtrack, as I said, to chapter 9, and we're going to look at verse 23. 
And I apologize that this is kind of fast and brief, but I think we're still going to get the point. Hebrews 9 verse 23 says, therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens, that's talking about the earthly sanctuary, the copies of the, th and let me just say this real quick. We can't see into heaven, folks. We can we don't know what's going on there unless we look at the model God gave us on the earth. The earthly sanctuary was given to give us idea, an idea, an understanding of what would be happening in heaven. And so we connect the two together, the sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days. The earthly was a copy. Verse 23, therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these. He's speaking of the animal sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, the earthly sanctuary, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. This is so loaded. Uh, I'm going to do this. I hope it's not a bad idea. Um, Hebrews chapter 8. I just want you to see something in Hebrews 8. There are some people who in the Seventh-day Adventist church today who have all but said the sanctuary was all accomplished. Look, Jesus went straight up to the most holy place. He did his high priestly ministry in the holy place on the earth, yada, yada, yada. That's Hebrews 8. If you go to Hebrews 8, verse 1, I want you to see, not verse 1, verse 4. Um, verses 1 through 4 talk about how Jesus is a heavenly high priest. But I want you to notice verse 4. He says, for if he were on earth, he would not be a priest since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow, etc. Jesus could not have been a priest on the earth. He was from the wrong tribe, the tribe of, of, of Judah, not the tribe of Levi. And the Apostle Paul makes that point in another place. Again, the simple point being, you can't fix Jesus' priestly ministry in the heavenly sanctuary to any time prior to his ascension to heaven. You can't do that. Um, so Paul's describing that point in Hebrews 9.23, it was necessary for the copies of the earthly to have these animal sacrifices as teaching a lesson. For Christ, verse 24, has not entered into holy places. I'm sorry, but the, but the heavenly things are with better sacrifices than these. Verse 24, for Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, again, the earthly sanctuary, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often. As the high priest enters, uh, literally, it should say the holy places of the sanctuary every year with the blood of another. Okay, that's his. That's the point we just read a little bit further in chapter ten. By one sacrifice, not many. Uh, the high priest, the earthly priest, would bring many sacrifices. Not that Jesus should offer himself often. Verse 20, 25. Um, now going into verse twenty-six, he then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. Now, get his language here. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared. What's he talking about Jesus appearing? When did he appear? When he came to this earth, okay? Don't miss this. So his coming to the earth, he's about to tell us the whole reason he came to this earth. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, okay? He, what the apostle tells us there is that Jesus' whole purpose in coming here was to get rid of sin, was to put it away. 
That's why he died on the cross, not just to forgive it and overlook it, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's his whole purpose. That's what the apostle tells us. I'm going to read that again. Verse 26. He would then have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him. Speaking of his second coming, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. So he appeared once, he came to put away sin by the sacrifice himself, he bore the sins on the cross, he will come a second time apart from sin for salvation. The New American Standard Bible says without reference to sin. The English Standard Version says not to deal with sin. And this is the simple point that the Apostle's making here, that Jesus now since his ascension, has been working as a heavenly high priest to finish that job of putting away sin. There's coming a time soon when that work will have been done. And then Jesus is not dealing with sin anymore. He's going to take off the priestly garments. He's going to put on the kingly robes. He's coming back to this earth, not as a high priest, but as the king of kings and lord of lords, not to deal with sin, not to deal with forgiveness of sin, but to deal with the execution of judgment. So there's a window of time now, as Jesus ministers in the heavenly sanctuary, to put away sin. And when he comes back, sin will have been put away. Now listen, stepping away from last generation theology, whatever anybody wants to call it, stepping away from theological debates, debates within Adventism, even stepping away from Christianity itself, if one were to simply pick up the Bible and read what we've read today, they couldn't help but come away with the understanding that the sacrifice of Christ and his ministry in the sanctuary above are for the purpose of getting rid of sin in the lives of any who are willing to receive his mediation before he comes again, and that his final work can't cease until that getting rid of sin is finished in the lives of the believers. That's what we just read in the book of Hebrews. Aside from Adventism, aside from Christianity, you just, other than the Bible, of course, being the essence of Christianity, true Christianity, you would come to this conclusion from reading the Bible itself. So instead of getting caught up in somebody's labels, listen, folks, this is present truth. The work of Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary above right now, putting away the sin of his people in preparation for his second coming in all his glory. Now, I'm going to finish it up there. I'm going to say one more thing that's going to lead us into this afternoon. The work of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary is not a one-way street. It's not like, oh, okay, cool. He's up there putting away sin. I'm just going to sit down here and take it easy, and I'm going to just keep on sinning because that's what I do. Uh, the work of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary is not a one-way street which is why it's so important for us to understand it. Uh, it's a two-way street. It's a work of cooperation. And this is what we're going to look at in our final message this afternoon, the harvest of life at 357. So I hope to see you there. Happy Sabbath, everyone. And uh, may God bless us as we direct our attention to our heavenly high priest who can save to the uttermost and who um, will complete, finish, the work he's begun in us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I just want to 
pause for a word of prayer and thank you for the testimony of your word of the apostle who has given us a glimpse into the work of Jesus in a heavenly sanctuary and why it's so important. What the blood of bulls and goats could never do, Jesus has done in living that perfect life, in dying for our sins on the cross, and now is currently working on as our high priest in the sanctuary above as we cooperate with him in that work. Lord, I want to, bless, I want to ask that you would bless each one who has joined us today. And I pray, Lord, that you'll be with us throughout the hours of the Sabbath. Draw near to us in a special way, Lord. Help us to be open to what it is you want to teach us today, to experience the joy of being in your presence. And Lord, bring us back together uh, according to your will this afternoon, that we may study once more and gain uh, a, a firmer commitment in our own faith and a stronger love for you and your son, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. For we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.